just try to bring some recognition in the mainstream world of cardiology that yes, estrogen is a key player in women's mm-hmm. cardiovascular systems and menopause is then a major event in a woman's cardiovascular life and giving hormones to maintain a physiological level of these hormones can help to maintain physiological performance of the cells. If you give the cell what it needs, it's going to do what it should do. And that applies to nutrients and it applies to hormones. So I'm hoping little by little to make a dent in the common thinking among the conventional medical world. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear part two of my conversation with Dr. Felice Gersh, the author of PCOS SOS. If you missed part one, you're gonna wanna go back and listen in as she is amazing to listen to and learn from. Today, we're gonna dive more into hope for PCOS patients. Let's get started. You've alluded to some labs, but just for everything you've said, can you go through, I, I'm speculating that the panels you run with your patients are going to be much more comprehensive than a, a patient would get from their maybe regular, you know, conventionally trained OB-GYN because you're talking about looking at insulin, looking at thyroid mm-hmm. hormones, SHBG, maybe advanced cardiovascular testing. Like what do you, you look <laughs> what exactly. do Exactly. Start with exactly. the hormones, but what do you check? What do you recommend patients with PCOS have checked? Well, they will always need to have their total testosterone checked. Um, Free testosterone is not very accurate in women because the levels are too low. You can order free testosterone, but honestly, you get as much information as you need by ordering total. And yes, I would get sex hormone binding globulin because you want to have an idea of what's going on in that regard. Very low sex hormone binding globulin is associated with metabolic dysfunction. So it has a certain... Implicit, implicit meaning to it as well as what it does to the hormones. So then we would always want to get the adrenal androgen, DHEA sulfate. Yep. And if that is high, you definitely would want to get an 8 a.m. fasting cortisol. And then you would also want to get a 17 hydroxy progesterone because that can distinguish if a woman has acquired adrenal hyperplasia. So basically, as I mentioned, androgens, the male type hormones come from both the adrenal gland and the ovaries. And a syndrome like PCOS incorporates women who have the primary PCOS problem, which is really the ovarian issue that I described, but there's another smaller subset where the problem is really originating in the adrenal gland, that the the adrenal gland is producing too much DHEAS, which then converts down to DHEA and also to testosterone. So in the healthy reproductive age woman, half her testosterone comes from the ovaries and half from the adrenal. So having high testosterone in itself doesn't tell you which of those two organs it's coming from. So that's where you look for DHEAS. DHEAS is only made by the adrenal. None of it comes from the ovary. So if you have high levels of androgens coming from your adrenal, you need to look for other issues going on with the adrenals, like involving cortisol and and these other enzyme systems. So that's really important that anyone who deals with PCOS or has PCOS makes sure that they get actually evaluated, like what's going on? Is this primarily adrenal or ovarian? And then you wanna look at estradiol levels, progesterone levels, and LH, luteinizing hormone, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. I often will get anti-mullerian hormone. That is a crazy name for a hormone because it's reflective of what it does when you're an embryo. 
But when you're a woman, a reproductive age woman, AMH, anti-malarian hormone, is I think it should be changed to a different name, follicle recruiter hormone, because it's the hormone that recruits all the little follicles. And then they all come to the party and they say, pick me, pick me. I want to be the one that ovulates, but some miracle happens and only typically one, occasionally two, (laughs) occasionally a twin, but usually one gets chosen and the others, what we call regress, they kind of like fade away. But within PCOS, you don't get that special one chosen. You just keep recruiting. You just like more, <laughs> come more to the party. So you keep getting all these little follicles. That's how come you get the the signature ultrasound finding of all these tiny little cysts around the rim of the ovaries is because the anti-malarian hormone, which levels are very high, keeps recruiting and you don't have the feedback system, which is the proper FSH that should be shutting down the production of the anti-malarian home. The whole system is not, not working right. So, so we'll measure anti-malarian hormone. So, and then in terms of thyroid, we always want to look for thyroid antibodies, which are not mm-hmm. typically done because there's high rates of Hashimoto. So we want to see our anti-TPO. We want to look for thyroglobulin antibody. And of course, we want to get the full array. We want to get TSH and we want to get free T3. T3 and we want to get free T4. So we definitely want to look uh, across the board at all of those. And then occasionally... I will get adiponectin. So especially in my younger girls where it's it's questionable, like you can't really make a diagnosis in a 14-year-old, not definitively. Their ultrasounds will often show PCOS even in a young, normal woman. And a lot of young women have high androgens. That's why there's so much teen acne. So it's really, you can't definitively make the diagnosis, but you can be suspicious. But if they have very low adiponectin levels, then that's unfortunately a sign that they probably are going to be a PCOS woman. We want to make sure that we take, well, in any case, we always want to be proactive, but even more so because adiponectin is an adipokine. It's a hormone made by adipose tissue that is very linked to the production of energy from fat. It's about triggering AMP kinase, a kinase signaling factor that causes mitochondria to burn fat. So even little girls, who are destined to be PCOS, because remember, these problems are developing in utero in most cases, they actually from birth are not able to burn fat as well as they often are like the seven-year-old that never got rid of their like toddler belly. You know, they have this little chubbiness to them. And it's like, why is this little girl so chubby? You know, it's not like she's eating differently than the other little girls, but she just has this like chubbiness to her. And that is often a prelude to developing PCOS, but you can check the adiponectin. So I will often check that. And then I like to check some of the genetic markers like the MTHFR, because I'm finding that some of the most severe manifestations of PCOS are in women who have the homozygous for MTHFR, like the double T. So they're capability of doing this process called methylation is about only 30% or so, 20 to 30% of what the optimal woman say, who doesn't have any of these variations in her genetics will have. And that makes it harder for her to get rid of these chemicals that are coming into her body. So, you know, we would get all of those types of things. And what about more advanced cardiovascular screening? I mean, maybe not in a, you know, 20 year old, but like- Right. So I do- Right. So it crosses all age groups. So, and PCOS at menopause just fades into 
all the other problems of menopause, but all the underlying issues are still there. So yeah, they, have, yeah. they used to say, and it never made sense that after menopause, women with PCOS have no higher risk of anything. Well, that made no sense. And it turns out now, of course, that is not true. <laughs> you know, But there's so many misconceptions about PCOS that, I mean, just logically thinking, how could that be? And of course it isn't. So they do have higher rates of all these problems that go on through the menopause years, but their ovaries are no longer functioning. So the androgen part, kind of goes away from yep. the picture, but all the metabolic stuff is still there. Right. So I absolutely do um, the most sophisticated cardiovascular testing. So the old fashioned lipid profile makes no sense. I mean, my goodness, it's like what, 50 years old? We now know that you have to look at the carrier particles, the apolipoproteins. We need to know how much reverse cholesterol particles are out there, how much the liver is producing. And you can look at LP little a, that is another significant risk marker. So there's like a, definitely a whole host of cardiovascular testing that should be done. In my older patients, I like to do imaging. So I have a vascular tech in my office, so I can awesome. actually look at their like the intima of their carotid artery to see what's going on in there. That's great. And yep. then I do a lot of inflammation markers. So I said, inflammation yep. is driving a lot of the problems of women with PCOS, but they don't have inflammation just randomly. It's all related to the diet and that we talked about. And as well, I didn't mention it, but because estrogen is very key to maintaining our master clock and our circadian rhythm. So women with PCOS essentially are living a life of jet lag. So because their um, master clock is like off the beat. So it's very important for like your liver and your pancreas to be working in the same time zone. That doesn't happen <laughs> in women who have PCOS. So there's like a disjunction between the timing of the different organs. And that is one of the things that I approach in terms of my therapy to try to get women back on the beat. In terms of looking at inflammation markers, I like to look at not just high sensitivity C-reactive protein, but microalbumin, which is a measure of leaky arteries. So we can understand like how the vascular health is really working, looking at the intima through a marker like microalbumin. And then I will sometimes look at some of the enzymes like myeloperoxidase or lipoprotein lipase. These are enzymes made by white cells that are involved in plaque stability or not having, you know, or stability. And if you have high levels of these enzymes, it's showing that the white cells are infiltrating into the artery wall and creating un potentially unstable plaque, which is what kills people when plaque ruptures. So we actually have right. markers for those things. And I can look at lipid peroxides indirectly by getting F2 isoprostanes, which is a measure of like oxidized fats in the body. Yeah. So we have so many of these wonderful inflammation markers. And then I like to look at homocysteine, which is going is an independent cardiovascular risk marker and will offer and go up in people who don't have adequate certain B vitamins, especially if they need methylated and they don't have it. And, and we now know that NAC and acetylcysteine can also help to lower homocysteine as well. So which women with PCOS, that's one of my mainstays as one of the supplements is and acetylcysteine. So I like to you know check on that. And then I get a lot of nutrient markers, like I'll look at B12 and then I like to look at copper and zinc and their ratio. And then I want to look at omega-3 and I want to look at CoQ10. So um, you can look at RBC magnesium. So there's a whole array of micronutrients that can also, I always look at omega-3, you know, they're my omega yes, checks. Yes. So I can look at my, the fatty acids 
And so I want to know my nutrient status. Many women with PCOS, as true of all Americans, are malnourished, right? So we want to recognize that the cells cannot work properly if they don't have the right machinery working. And that means that they have to have these micronutrients. Because when you look at like the TCA, the Krebs cycle, you know, you need these nutrients, you know, you need to have zinc. You can't function without B12. You've got to have your magnesium, you know. These are Mm -hmm. all critical in order to create energy for for the health of every organ system. So we look Absolutely. at all of those things. So it's a, a lot of labs. And then I look at um, markers for um, autoimmunity. Like I like to look at the anti-nuclear antibody. If there's any issues whatsoever, I get like a celiac, a standard celiac panel to see, because we know that unfortunately autoimmune related issues with gluten are very prevalent throughout the population. And once you have gut dysbiosis, abnormal microbiome, you're, if you have the genetic propensity, which exists in like 40% of the population, you're more likely to activate it and then develop the autoimmunity involving the, the gluten. So sure. we, we got to look just, at all that. That was very thorough. Yeah. So I'm sure this has given a lot of the listeners ideas for collabs <laughs> to have a run on themselves. Speaking to inflammation and what's contributing to that inflammation, what about food sensitivity testing? Like beyond just looking at celiac uh, risk, I mean, is there a diet that you recommend across the board or do you uh, advise for food sensitivity testing? Well, I used to do a lot of food sensitivity testing. And then uh, the more I did it, the more I felt that it really was more a marker of leaky gut. That when people had lots and lots of food sensitivities, they had leaky gut. gut. And I was pretty good at figuring out who had leaky gut more empirically. And, you know, these tests can add up and so on. And most of them are covered by insurance, but not 100%. So we've kind of gone sort of the old-fashioned route now. We do an elimination diet. So we do like the, the truth is in the life, you know. So we have what we call a reset that we do on every patient, like in this category, with few exceptions. We put them on what we call our reset, which is an elimination diet, which means that you take out the, of course, all processed and chemical foods, but mm-hmm. also foods that are not innately evil. They're actually good foods, but they're the foods that most often trigger some sort of inflammatory response or some kind of unpleasant response in people. We take them out. We see how people do. We give gut support, liver support with supplements, you know, for helping liver detoxification improvement uh, with its processes, reducing leaky gut, you know, L-glutamine, demulcents, and, you know, milk thistle related products and NAC and DIM, you know, all the ones that people in functional medicine are very familiar with. So we have our own protocol and we do the elimination diet and then we slowly add things back. We also teach a lot about having a lifestyle that's going to lower your exposures to endocrine disruptors and other toxic chemicals out there in the world. So we we do that for a month and it's dramatic. We do like a little survey, you know, looking at different symptoms and so on, how just in one month people feel enormously better. And it's not a weight loss program, but women who need to lose weight will typically lose about six pounds just by, you know, it's the part and parcel of just getting healthier. So we don't actually call it a detox because the conventional medical world looks down on that so much. But so we call it a reset <laughs> that it's basically helping the detoxification pathways, helping to restore gut integrity, gut health, and then looking at what foods may disagree with the person, getting them off of the processed garbage and all the processed sugar laden foods and so forth, and getting them on a whole farm to table organic type of a diet. And then we incorporate time-restricted eating. So we try to get them to eat regular time meals, no snacks. Every time you eat 
food, you're going to raise your glucose and insulin. So we want to try to put the food into the morning as much as possible. That's when we're genetically programmed with the most insulin sensitivity. And there's so much data now that shows that if you can push most of your food or a big significant proportion into the morning, that your glucose and your insulin levels will not rise as much. And it also reprograms the way the brain Things. They've actually done yeah. functional studies, like imaging studies of the brain and the amygdala, which is all about impulse and, you know, and anger and all those emotions and the frontal lobes, which are about thinking and processing that they work better. They've actually done brain imaging, functional imaging, showing that when you eat a big breakfast of healthy foods, that the brain is going to work better, that you have fewer urges and binges, and you don't even, if you eat a really great breakfast, you don't even want to snack and you don't want to eat at night. And it really is real. The brain is yeah. altered, visibly altered in very good ways. So, you know, we try to re-educate on all of these right out the gate so that people can feel dramatically better just in one month. It's interesting that you say that because I've had some other guests that I've interviewed on intermittent fasting. And so, you know, right now that's kind of like the, I don't know, the, the I don't know, I want to say the rage, but a lot of individuals are skipping breakfast. But to be honest, I feel way better if I have breakfast. Yeah. And then, like in my book, I say eat breakfast like a king, Yay. lunch like a queen, and then what is yeah. it? Dinner like a popper? I don't know. You got <laughs> so, it. That's so, it. That's the saying. And so, I applaud so, you. I'm so yeah. happy you said that because there is this crazy thing about fasting for really long periods of the day, which isn't inherently wrong. They're just doing it during the wrong period. Once yeah. you, yeah, once you understand that we are genetically programmed as diurnal creatures, we're day creatures and we are genetically programmed to be more insulin sensitive in the morning. Everything is on a timer. Like we know men make more testosterone yep. at this in morning. The morning. Hour. Yep. That's yep. right. And we are timed up. Insulin peaks in its efficacy at this time and this and the adiponectin and everything you can, you know, they have slides that you can get, you know, pictures from studies that show a clock face. And it shows that each time of the day, like this is when you have your lowest temperature. This is when you have your peak of right. blood pressure going up. You know, that's why heart attacks are more likely to happen in the early morning hours and strokes. Everything is on a timer. So we cannot change that. That's built into our genes. So people who say I'm a night owl, I tell them you're messed up. I'm sorry, because <laughs> humans are not owls. <laughs> so. The, so if someone wants to um, eat for fewer hours, it almost sounds like it'd be better to not eat, you know, dinner, not, not to eat later it. in the day and fast so, until the next morning. And I pe- feel better yes. that way. I, I do. So yeah, Absolutely. I'm glad you're confirming that for me. Yay, yeah. Cool. <laughs> You've already really gone into just now with your, the protocol that you guys offer at your practice, kind of the healthy habits and, and some lifestyle changes for PCOS. So for the listeners again, and I'll probably turn this into two episodes because we're getting <laughs> long oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can you I want to go back to the endocrine disrupting chemicals for a moment here. Can you just speak to some of the lifestyle changes? So you mentioned getting plastic out, just straight up getting plastic out of your right. life as much as you can. Yeah, are there which is very some, hard. Which are some other, are there other blanket rules that you? Yes, you absolutely. So, I mean, there've been people who've done like my year without plastic and it was like impossible, right? So you have to do your best, but at least don't store food in plastic, Okay. If you put a lid on that's plastic, make sure the food is cooled before you put the lid on and try not to have the food touch the lid. If you do takeout food, as soon, I mean, they always say bring your own container, but I don't know who's really doing that. 
But if you take the food home, immediately get it out of that container and put sure. it into stainless steel or glass, glass yep. and um, make sure your cookware doesn't have stick resistant stuff that is potentially yep. toxic. So you don't want that in because that off gases while you're cooking and also gets into your food. And personal care products are a significant contributor to and toxins in the body. So you don't, you want to look at like, does this have methylparabens? Does this have so-called fragrance? That means it's a phthalate, you know? So look at the ingredients of what yep. you're getting. There's so many natural organic things like for skincare products, you can buy expensive stuff and it says has lavender essential oil, has this neem oil. It has, you know, rose geranium oil. And it will say in shea butter. Well, you know, we buy like really inexpensive organic shea butter and all the essential oils and just mix your own thing. You know, <laughs> then you don't have any of those, you know, Extras, methyl parabens yeah. for the, you know, the preservatives and your, everything is organic yep. and it costs a tiny amount of money, you know, compared to like, you're not paying for all this fancy packaging, you know, you get your own little containers. So, you know, it doesn't take that long to do those things. And it's kind of fun, you know, and you can experiment a little bit because, you know, if you put one or five drops in, it's not going to change anything unless and you're using a very highly irritant oil like tea tree, you know, we have to be careful, but sure. most of it, you know, it's, you know, just experiment a little bit and get like, there's so many books and recipes for how to make your own personal care products, but, you know, be careful, like sunblock. We know that that can be quite toxic. You should only use the metal ones, like the, um, tight, the, um, titanium oxide, yeah. or zinc, zinc oxide, but definitely the zinc oxide, but definitely don't use the ones that have the um all the different chemicals in them that are really oxy absorbed. this oxy that. yeah oxy yeah. oxy whatever right <laughs> exactly and you can go to the environmental working groups website you know where they um rate not every product i i walk around with it and it's like i try to buy something and it's not in their data bank you know but you know you have a lot of products that are in their data bank yeah. you can look at things that are rated based on their their content of poison. So you can um, get airport purifiers, get water purifiers. You know, those are really important things because we now know that there's a lot of studies coming out, not shocking for us who know about this, but they're like, you know, air pollution kills how many people, millions of people around the world every year, you know, it's like a lot, you know, and it, it causes all kinds of learning disabilities in kids and all kinds of things. So you definitely want to lower your exposures. And then of course you want to have healthy liver, healthy gut so yep. that you can actually deal with it. I like saunas a lot. And if you don't have a sauna, you can also sweat, you know? So if you, you know, do exercise or create your own little sauna like in your bathroom by putting on the, the hot water and making steam but you know exercise as long as your water is purified and you're not that's you know, chlor right. chlorinating your that's right <laughs> you have to have a whole house that's right a whole house water purifier but there's nothing like exercise and just ordinary yes. sweat that is but then you get all the benefits of exercise which is fantastic so um you know it's look Great at what tips. you buy and you know wash your clothes before you put them on <laughs> <laughs> so that also helps. literally uh, yeah <laughs> literally wash your clothes before you put them on and you know as much as you can buy natural products you know natural fibers it's challenging definitely you know like when i saw what gore-tex does it's like oh darn you know because i like water you know proofing things you know if you're going skiing but you've got to you know be aware that the more you put in into your life the more that's going to be into your body and so uh -huh. we've got to we got to do what we can Totally. You've alluded to nutrients that are extremely important, but I, I do want to ask about, I, 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 we opened this episode uh, talking about, well, I at least 
I made a joke about birth control metformin. So I do want to come back to medications for a moment, but first I want to talk about supplements because I commonly get asked about inositol uh, use in PCOS. So are there a few top supplements that you are for, or are there any supplements that you are against for PCOS that are there any myths around, you know, well, supplements they, for these patients? Well, Definitely, there are a few like very useful ones that are pretty much across the board for like fish for oil. Women. <laughs> yeah, actually, vitamin D and fish oil yep. and uh, B complex, like a good prenatal vitamin, those are all like really mainstays that could get forgotten when you're looking at them more esoteric. Exactly. <laughs> so, for women who have the ovarian version or have issues with ovulation, myoinositol is really a very important one. There's a lot of data on that. The D-chiroinositol is a little bit more controversial in yeah. terms of what is the right dosing because just as a quick note, so inositols are a family and the, what, what makes D-chiroinositol different from myoinositol is not their chemical formula. Their chemical formula is identical. It's their stereotactic orientation. So it's how they are in 3D. So like if this is my arm, it's the same arm if it's straight up or if it's like that. So that's like a stereoisomer. So this is a stereoisomer of my arm from this. So it's the same formula. It's just in a different position in space, how it's arranged. So that's what makes them different, but they actually have different effects because of that. And the d works very well in the liver to help with glucose function and glucose transfer. But in the ovary, d can actually impair the ability of myoinositol to work and can actually That's what make, heard, yeah. make trans, transformation of testosterone into estrogen worse, okay? And myoinositol works to upregulate the enzyme epimerase, which is important for then the function of the other enzyme aromatase. So I'm waiting for more data to come out on the D-chiro. Also, if you give D-chiro in some ratio orally, that doesn't mean it's going to get anywhere in particular in the body in that ratio. And the D-chiro myo ratio is different in different organs. So it's different in the plasma than it is in the ovary, than it is in the liver. So what exactly is the ratio you're looking for? And if you give it how do you know it's going to stay in that ratio right. in any organ? Right. How do you even know how it's getting you know, digested and utilized? So all of this is still in the works. And so I generally stick just with myoinositol for now. And then I do other things to help with glucose regulation because that's really the biggest thing with d -chiro. For women who are older, there may be some more benefit to giving d because we're not trying to get them to ovulate, you know, so we need more research on this. Sure. So, but uh, myoinositol is a mainstay. And then, as I mentioned, N-acetylcysteine yep. is a mainstay. N-acetylcysteine has so many functions with glucose transport and with detoxification and liver health. So it's, it's a mainstay for so many different things in the body. And then now we know quercetin, is a, which is a polyphenol, has a lot of benefits for obesity, for many metabolic dysfunctions. So quercetin is another one that I use a lot. Melatonin has receptors in the ovary and women have the problems with their rhythms, with their circadian rhythm. And taking melatonin can also help with not just sleep, but it's potent antioxidant. It helps with glucose regulation. Melatonin is a multifaceted hormone. And it turns out that women with PCOS may also have some disruption of their melatonin receptor function as well, just to make things more complex. So that's an, another important one. And then berberine can be very, very helpful. It has many functions, glucose regulation, gut microbiome, 
So those are some of my real, and then with the foundational ones that, that were mentioned. And then, you know, after we do our reset, we go into that. It's very hard because there's so many, like there's data on CoQ10 with helping as well. There's no polyphenol I've met that I don't love, like curcumin. <laughs> curcumin is really great. And then for insulin resistance, we know that, you know, chromium and magnesium, I didn't mention, but I can overwhelm people. I can like send them out sure. with a hundred. So I do try <laughs> to like look at each individual situation Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that I sometimes just like, okay, I'll give you a multi-mineral supplement. I'll give you a prenatal vitamin because it's just like how much, you know, and, and a lot of times when you give blended products, unfortunately they have... A lot of things that look good on paper, but when you look actually at the, what they're getting, they're getting suboptimal amounts of each one. So it only looks good on paper, but you know, you're getting a teeny bit of this and a teeny bit of that and teeny bit of this, you know. And then I like to use a lot of teas because herbal teas, mm. you know, like ginger is great. And spearmint tea helps lower testosterone. And holy basil is very relaxing, and chamomile helps with gut and sleep. So there's a. I love using teas. I like using essential oils because at least I'm not giving more pills. You know, right. like I call it pillitis. You get too many pills. You know, so I, I like that. I usually say ways. pill fatigue. I like that pillitis. Yeah. <laughs> you might already know that insulin resistance can lead to weight gain, but. Did you know that it also is one of the leading causes of death for its role in diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's? Diet changes are essential when it comes to combating insulin resistance, but additional nutrients can also help. The one I recommend the most, berberine. Berberine is a plant extract that has been used in Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine for over 2,500 years. In addition to its long history, modern clinical trials have demonstrated that berberine supports cardiovascular health in a number of important synergistic ways. These include helping you maintain blood pressure, support healthy heart contraction and rhythm, and support healthy cholesterol and glucose levels. Our berberine support product also contains alpha-lipoic acid, or ALA, which has been shown to support blood sugar balance and is also a powerful antioxidant that scavenges free radicals. It's wonderful for maintaining healthy blood vessel and circulatory health. Consider taking the Synergistic Blend daily, or especially if you eat more than normal or indulge over the holidays or a birthday, where it should help reduce blood sugar spikes. Check out our product info sheet at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash product forward slash berberine hyphen support. To get 10% off berberine support, use code berberine at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. So back to the metformin then. So do you find in your practice that you have very good outcomes and very good compliance and commitments from your patients with your whole protocol and you don't even need to use medications often? Or do you have a lot of severe cases and you do find yourself using medications like metformin or, or spironolactone? Well, a lot of my patients come in on spironolactone and metformin yep. and birth control yep. pills. I take them off the birth control pills and then I leave them on the metformin spironolactone initially. Of course, like you cannot get pregnant when you're on spironolactone because right. it's a birth defect producer. It's a teratogen. So I have to have to look at the risk of pregnancy as well at that point, sure. especially I'm taking them off birth control pills. But depending on if they're sexually active or not, I will leave them on their medications initially and then I wean them off. Okay. But um, in terms of initiating it, um, I almost never, never start by initiating with um, those drugs because I can usually do so much just through lifestyle. Now, yes. if someone comes in and they have massive cystic acne, you know, I, I definitely, and they have, you know, sky high testosterone. I may very well put them on spironolactone because I have to have them feel better about themselves. And, and I'm not averse to giving some of the incretins, the, um, the drugs that are the GLP one 
agonists. They help with um, diabetes, you know, insulin resistance and weight loss, but not forever. You know, these are a bridge to health. For women, say a woman is 100 plus pounds overweight, that is overwhelming. So if I can give something that's going to accelerate her weight loss over a few months while I'm making all these lifestyle changes, then I'm using pharmaceuticals, I think, the right way. You know, looking at an exit strategy, using them as tools to help my patients to facilitate their goals. So, um, you know, I individualize every single case. Love that. I have... Two last questions for you. So I know you recently had a publication, which I thought was amazing. And you've already drawn a very strong parallel between similar risks that PCOS patients have as menopausal patients due to the lower estrogen. And your paper was about, you know, I believe and the importance of estrogen for reducing cardiovascular risk. Do you want to quickly speak to that? Oh, I would love to. So estrogen, as you now all know, is (laughs) critical for all aspects of metabolic health. Well, they always call it cardiometabolic health because it's all linked, the cardiovascular system, the metabolic functions of the body. And when you lose your estrogen, you lose your metabolic homeostasis. You lose that that critical vibe that you need to stay optimally healthy because estrogen keeps everything working together, unified and facilitating proper immune function and the proper response for inflammation, resolution, and you know production of energy, healing, everything is all related to proper estrogen levels. So without estrogen, your vascular system starts to deteriorate. The heart, which is a massive user of energy, becomes energy deficient, becomes stiffer, which you can actually see on, on echocardiograms as a called mild diastolic dysfunction. So women are very unique in how their bodies adapt in good and bad ways to loss of estrogen from their ovaries as you know the ovaries go through this aging process or senescence. And so the manifestations in terms of cardiovascular effects are really dramatic. And this is not recognized and appreciated by our conventional medical world. And they just ascribe all the things that happen to women from menopause on as aging, like this sort of nebulous thing called aging. Well, can think of aging as the accumulation of deficiencies and inabilities of the body to perform properly. Well, once you acknowledge and accept that estrogen is critical to having proper function at the cellular level and mitochondrial organelle level of every single organ in the body, then of course, every single system in the body is going to suffer. And the cardiovascular system is obviously a very dominant system in the body that's going to manifest with many ills. And the cardiovascular events of women, heart attacks and strokes are the number one cause of death in women more than other cause like cancers and so forth. It's it's just dominant is cardiovascular events. And they're not all happening in 90 and 100 year old women. We're talking about women in the prime of their lives, like 55 to 70. There are more and more of these incidents of strokes and heart attacks in women, often unrecognized until too late in the game. And they call women's heart attack presentation often atypical. Well, they're not atypical for women. Stop calling it that. They're typical for women. They're just atypical for men. We could call men's presentations atypical. You know, so women have been underrecognized as having issues. They're underappreciated in terms of the role of estrogen. And because of that, they're simply put on the sidelines and it's like you wait. Well, most women will develop hypertension. Then you put them on this drug and then another drug and another drug because usually 
they don't work over the long haul. And then they have heart problems. So then you put them on other you know, statins and all this kind of thing, which by the way, statins don't even work for primary prevention in women. They just give them much higher risk of diabetes. Drugs don't work the same in men and women, and they didn't really study women. They studied Mm -hmm. men. And so we need to see the differences between men and women, the uniquenesses of women's cardiovascular system and the role that estrogen plays and the loss of estrogen in terms of stiffening of the vascular system, loss of nitric oxide, stiffening of the heart, and that women's cardiovascular problems are different in terms of like heart attack. It's usually microvasculars, the tiny little vessels in the heart that create the problems as opposed to the main thoroughfares like the, uh, the big coronary arteries like they are in men. So stenting in women is usually more harmful than beneficial unless it's right in the middle of a heart attack. And it's actually the vessel that you're stenting is the one where the blood clot you know, is actually landed and is blocking the flow, which is usually not the case because it's usually in those tiny little vessels, which you cannot stent. And it's usually causing an arrhythmia, not a dead area of the heart, but rather a a shock to the heart. And women are more prone to this other condition, Takusubo, which is also known as broken heart syndrome, which is because the autonomic nervous system of women is very much more dysregulated after menopause. They're more sympathetic. So they're more like stress response, which can cause an overwhelming shock effect on the heart. And that is in 80, 90% of those cases, they're female and they're menopausal women. So my goal with this first article is to just try to bring some recognition in the mainstream world of cardiology that yes, estrogen is a key player in women's Mm -hmm. cardiovascular systems and menopause is then a major event in a woman's cardiovascular life and giving hormones to maintain a physiological level of these hormones can help to maintain physiological performance of the cells. If you give the cell what it needs, it's going to do what it should do. And that applies to nutrients and it applies to hormones. So I'm hoping little by little to make a dent in the common thinking among the conventional medical world. Estrogen's not the devil. Women need, well, women oh, we love it. <laughs> we <laughs> need estrogen, right. yes. We Especially do. from a cardiovascular standpoint. So thank you. Okay, top longevity tip. What is your top longevity tip? Well, it's interesting that when they study, if talking about like cardiovascular health, when you get into the older age groups, probably the biggest thing that differentiates life and death is purpose and love. Mm. So loneliness with aging is a huge cause of death. So what I would like to focus on as my main longevity tip is to always hold those dear to you, to maintain connectivity with other people, to maintain purpose, to remain purposeful and have love in your life. Beautiful, beautiful. So I know you have a special gift for our listeners and then we'll wrap up here. So tell the listeners what that is. Well, I wrote an ebook on menopause and it gives lots of basic necessary foundational information and lots of helpful hints on how to stay really healthy during the menopause years. We'll post so a I'd link. like to give it. Yes, and I'll provide a link. <laughs> thank you. you so much for that. For that, We will post a link to that free book in the show notes. So thank you. And speaking of books, 
for all the listeners, I know you probably are very overwhelmed with <laughs> everything you've heard today, but hopefully this has shed a lot of hope and light on your situation. I encourage you get her book, PCOS SOS, which is incredible. And she dives into pretty much everything that we <laughs> covered today. So I have heard you speak several times and you certainly are a prolific lecturer. So I, I thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for being the synthesizer of all that information <laughs> and writing the book that you did and just really providing hope for patients with PCOS because I think you're one of, again, one of the very few individuals that I could even bring on the show and, and you clearly were the expert and are the best guest for this topic today. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. My pleasure. Hope to see you again. Well, there you have it. Two full episodes of expert info on PCOS contributors, risk considerations, lifestyle changes, supplements, medications, and hope. I encourage you to get her book, PCOS SOS, where she talks in great more depth about all things mentioned in this podcast. And please follow Dr. Gersh on Instagram at Gersh, F-E-L-I-C-E-G-E-R-S-H, and on Twitter at Gersh. Her website is integrativemgi.com, and check out her free menopause book link, which I will post in the show notes be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.